The New Testament reading is from 1 Corinthians. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over to the kingdom of God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Sorry, this is the word of the Lord. Our gospel reading is from uh, the 24th chapter of Luke. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. All right, let's practice this. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. He is risen Hallelujah. Very good. I'm impressed. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we think on this story of those first women who encountered the empty tomb and Peter after them, would you help us to sense what they sensed and would you help us to be changed as they were changed as we think about what it would mean for us to take the reality of the resurrection into our everyday lives, in our world, into our stories themselves, we pray. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. All right, so uh, the resurrection, it bears mentioning every year, 
is the core of Christian belief. It is the, the very center of all that the church is about, of all that every Christian is about. Um, and so in other words, if the body of Jesus, who was crucified, dead, and buried, right, if his body was not physically raised out of the grave, out of the tomb, we're all a bit silly. And what we're doing this morning is a nice moment of dress up and sort of you know, pulling out the flowers and celebrating, but we're all a bit silly and we just need to acknowledge that and sort of sit with that for a little bit. That's exactly how Paul frames it in the text that we read this morning, that you know, we are to be pitied, that there's something foolish about us if we've staked the way we live life on a myth, on something that didn't happen. So if you were one of the early followers of Jesus and you encountered the death of Jesus as was true of all of these disciples and really all of the individuals that were excited about the things that Jesus was doing. Remember over the Lenten season, we've talked about the justice of God's kingdom and the way Jesus implemented acts of justice in the earth. And so if you're one of those persons who's watching that and sort of following Jesus around and you're curious about it, what does his death mean for you? Well, it just simply means you have to wait longer. It doesn't mean that you've necessarily let go of the promises of God as you've read about them through, child, through your childhood into adult life about what God has said concerning his Messiah, concerning his future kingdom of justice, but it means that Jesus was not your guy. And you have some personal sadness with your proximity to that maybe. It's more a personal grief because you knew him more intimately or if you were at a distance from Jesus, you... Um, you, you felt a different kind of grief. There was a sadness because there was so much hope and so much expectation, right, that the kingdom of God that you've heard people talk about, uh, this moment of justice that maybe you've even dreamed about, it's secured because the king is here, but he's dead, and so now you're resigned to waiting. If you're on the other side of the power equation of that particular moment in history and you're a part of the Roman culture and the Roman apparatus, the political apparatus, right? If you're a part of that, what, what does Jesus' death mean to you? Well, it just simply means that life goes on as it has been going on. You're in control. Your power is real power. And your power is the dominant word of the day. And this was just another execution, frankly, and so you just rise and eat your breakfast the way you ate breakfast yesterday. If Jesus, however, was in fact raised out of death into life, everything changes. Everything changes about his personal story. And everything begins to change about the world story that is about our story too. Leslie Newbigin was a pastor um, in India for most of his life or much of his sort of adult life. And as he puts, the, as he writes about the meaningfulness of the life of Jesus, he reflects on it in a book called A Proper Confidence and in many other places in his writings. He concludes this about the death of Jesus, the life of Jesus in his death. He, he basically says something to the effect of that the assertion of Jesus, right, as God incarnate in our world, in other words, God become a person inside of our world, right? Living a life, seeking this kingdom of justice, and then crucified, dead, buried, but then resurrected. He says that that kind of event did not squarely fit inside of 
the way sort of persons that were sort of um, trained and sort of immersed in a, in a Greek and Roman way of thinking about life and meaning. It, th- that story of Jesus makes no sense. But it also didn't squarely fit within, in the way people thought with inside of the Jewish world at the moment either. Which is why when you read the gospel stories, right, that Jesus is so out of sorts. That, you know, that the religious leaders who studied scripture the most are most confused about who Jesus is. They're just constantly stumbling over Jesus. In other words, Newbigin basically points out that everyone stumbles over Jesus. If you insist on fitting him into your take-it-for-granted world. He will never make sense to you. He only begins to make sense as you take him as the very center, the very core, the very beginning of the way you begin to think about meaning in this life. It's so incredibly important that we sort of hold on to that this morning. Everything hinges on the resurrection being true. But we need to be very honest with ourselves and I think with our neighbors and our family and our friends and our colleagues in the workplace that resurrection is a really, really, really hard truth to hold on to, right? It's a, it's a, it's a kind of certainty that we talk about, but it, it, it almost makes no sense, right? Because I've never seen one. You've never seen one. You can walk around Woodland Cemetery in our own neighborhood and you walk around and you do not expect to see empty graves unless they've been vandalized, right? Resurrection is the very core of Christian identity and yet it is this vulnerable truth that is so hard to hold on to. And I think it's really important for us particularly those of us that have been followers of Jesus for a really long time, and you've just fallen into the habit of saying, well, I I believe it, I take this for granted, this is what's real. It's so easy for us to sort of arrive at a moment like today and be absolutely excited and be caught up in the beauty and the drama of what we're doing today and forget that resurrection is still a really, really hard truth to hold on to. And if you're going to love your neighbor well, if you're going to live in this world well, it'll be really important for you to reconnect with those feelings of doubt, (laughs) with those moments of uncertainty, so that you might be a context, a person, a space in which other people continue to meet the resurrected Christ. So let's think about this story As Luke takes us into this early Easter morning, this first Easter morning in which women are present at the tomb of Jesus, and let's consider how their story might actually help us with our own. All right, so first, what do these women believe, right? They're named, right? Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and then there are some other unnamed women that are here, which by the way, just it merits as an aside that um, most social historians would tell you that if you were sort of, you know, fabricating a story, you were trying to figure out a way to continue the happy legacy of Jesus' talk about the kingdom, that you wouldn't sort of, sort of craft a story in which women are the primary storytellers, at least not at first, because their word was not considered a valid witness. You know, and you see how the men react to the women in the story, right? That, in other words, this is a really weird space to start, but that's exactly where Luke starts. Why? Because well, women would have been the ones to go to the tomb. This was considered 
sort of their work, their space of tending to the dead body. And so they've arrived that morning with spices in hand. What do they believe? They thought they'd find a corpse. They thought they would find the dead body of Jesus exactly where they had observed him being laid the Friday before. That's what they seem to have believed. Now look, it's always popular to sort of say, you know, the world of ancient people and our world are vastly different, and guess what? They really are. You know, they didn't have smartphones. Technology wasn't a problem. Fake news wasn't necessarily a problem. And, you know, just all of these things are just tremendous cultural gaps that existed. Modern medicine wasn't sort of in play at the moment. Modern scientific ways of thinking about life was not in play. They're just, we could just go down the line of all the ways in which we find so many differences between us and ancient people. And one of the things that, that you know, we like to sort of hang on to is, well, you know, Ancient people were more prone to sort of religious belief than we are. Now, I've studied sociology enough to know that that's a myth, that that's not true. Uh, in fact, when I was doing my own PhD work in sociology, in the field of sociology, one of the women in my cohort, who was one of the most secular persons in my cohort, actually, I remember toward the end of my period of study with, with this group of people, we're sitting there, and in this little group just talking about something randomly, and she shares that she's amounted a great deal of debt. And the debt was because she had spent the last three years of our sort of graduate studies talking to psychics. So here's a person who's like deeply invested in being secular, right? She's a sociologist. But she wants something else. So in other words, so, so when we sort of begin to be critical of ancient people or we imagine them to be sort of religiously gullible, let's just be a little more patient here. Let's, let's be a little more generous toward them. And when it comes to death, I think they understood death better than we understand it. And there's a very simple reason that in our society, what happens as you age? You're tucked away out of sight. We don't like to be near death. And we do everything to avoid it. But in their society, in their moment, death, death was palpably present. It was there. They weren't naive about death. They weren't stupid people. They knew that dead bodies stayed in tombs. And that's what the women believed as they showed up that first morning and find it empty. And then just notice the way, right, we've already commented that the men, when they take this story back to the men, what are their first conclusions? Just the same kind of unbelief and worse because there's a little bit of sexism attached to it, right? Because they just very simply conclude, this, these are just women talking. This is the idle talk of women. And we may not like that, but that's what Luke says happened. Everyone is fitting these stories into the taken-for-granted world of their day. You know, life happens in the space of your birth and your death, and that's it. Death is real. So this is a really simple way for us to apply this to ourselves. If you read the stories of resurrection, or you walk through the rest of the year, right, and you're sort of... You, you show up at church and you sort of are secretly sort of carrying a little secret with you. It's like, I, I, I'm not so sure. You know, I'm like, I think, but I'm not so sure. I've got my doubts. I've got my questions, right? And, you know, hey, I have mine. 
there's a lot of comfort that you can draw from this because the very closest followers of Jesus were unbelievers when it came to that first Easter morning. They doubted. Or, or even they just didn't know. They just were perplexed. They were confused. They had no idea what to do with this. Now, notice what Luke reports about their feelings in this. Because, you know, we think of ourselves as sort of, you know, we're, it's all about the cognitive, right? It's just if we can just get our beliefs right. If we can just sort of hold on to what we confess and what we believe. And you know how hard it is to hold on to. Why? Because your emotions take over, right? We're, we're not just sort of cognitive thinking persons. We feel. Do you feel? What do these women feel? Verse 4, they feel perplexed, right? They, are, they, they, they see the empty tomb and they just, have you ever felt that sort of rush of confusion inside? It's not just like, I don't know what to think. It's like, I, I have no idea what's happening. This is weird. I'm perplexed. I'm confused. I'm uncertain. This feels chaotic. Something's not right about this picture, right? And so there's sort of that going on. And then there are these, this really weird event, right? Uh, these angelic beings show up and then there's, you know, the feelings of being perplexed in the moment yield the feelings of terror, and that would be you too because you'd be in a tomb after all, and you'd, that, that's, a, that's a strange space. It's even a little bit creepy, and, and here, you know, there, there's terror, and the terror gives way to reverence, right, because there's this awareness that they're in the presence, the space of something mysterious happening there before them. Or you jump over to the, the sort of, the encounter with the men, the male disciples, when they're telling that story, how do they feel? They feel contempt. Or maybe they feel cynical, right? There's sort of that feeling of cynicism as you sort of condemn the story of the women, right? As idle talk. So these are the things that are going on in this scenario. And you can imagine if you were that woman showing up, if we were in the shoes of these women that show up to tell this amazing story to these disciples, and there's a little bit of eye-rolling going on. There's tension, right, in the way the story is unfolding. Or you look at Peter, who has a little bit of curiosity, and so he runs to find out what's going on, and his curiosity gives way to amazement. Or you read a little further along in the story of Luke as he tells this story, and it's the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And this is, you know, they're leaving Jerusalem because they've given up, right? They're part of that discipleship crew, right, who had believed Jesus was the Messiah that was to come. But he died, and so he can't be Messiah, and so we have to wait. And so there's a sense of bewilderment. There's a sense of discouragement and despondency in them, but their feelings will eventually give way to hearts being warmed around the breaking of the bread and this conversation they've had with Jesus. The behavioral changes are really interesting in this story, too, because the women have obviously showed up doing things, spices in hand, but they become persons who do witness. They become the first witnesses of resurrection. And they leave the tomb and they go and find the men, the disciples, and they report all that had happened. And you can imagine that the excitement that would be upon them as they reported out this story, right? They're, they're, they've become witnesses to the resurrection. So the question I have as I read this is, well, how did their story turn around? Right? How did they go from being persons who were perplexed to having a little bit more clarity of belief or persons who feel some angst and some terror to feeling joy and buoyancy 
or persons who are merely tending a dead body to persons who are witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. What turns around in their story? It hinges in some respect upon the angelic witness itself, who, right? This is a, a moment in which God breaks in yet again into our ordinary lives so that we begin to think and feel and behave differently. He doesn't leave us with the world that we know. Um, and that's a comfort because as you think about the world of this past week or the world of this past year that's included for you moments of joy or moments of sorrow or your own moments of perplexity because of hard things or difficult news in your own life or a friend's life and just so on and so forth, it's comforting to know that God doesn't leave you merely with your story. He situates your story inside of his own. And that's why the angelic witnesses have burst into this moment of perplexity is to help these women see things and think things differently. To think, to feel, to do differently. To be transformed in all spaces of their being. What do they do? Well, the angelic witness has the advantage of what? Of seeing things from God's perspective because they're part of God's world. So in the biblical story, we often think about earth and heaven, right? Often it's categorized that way. And we think of sort of God's world and our world. And there's a veil between those worlds so that we don't readily see what's happening in God's world. The angelic witness have the benefit of seeing things from the vantage point of God's world. And so their question to the women as they're in their moment of terror and then reverence is just very simply, well, why do you seek the living among the dead? You know, you're really looking for Jesus in a very odd place. That's what they see. That's what they perceive. And they sort of extrovert that. They put it out in there for the women to begin to think about things a little differently. And if they were to do that to you, you were there at the tomb and you're feeling those things, what would happen to your perplexity? You know, I think mine would increase. I think, you know, if they said that, I would just be like, like, what are you talking about? You know, that's a little bit of Philly talk, right? You know, what are you talking about? What's going on here? This is really weird. And so, so then we get the antidote. And the antidote to their perplexity is where the angelic witness takes them. Back to the words of Jesus himself. So if you read back into Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9, for example, you'd see spaces where Jesus has talked about his coming suffering and death and resurrection. And that's where the, wit the witness is taken. They, think about what Jesus said, right? The Son of Man would be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again, right? In other words, the women lived like the rest of us under the gravitational pull of the world they knew. And you came in off the streets of Philadelphia today and the gravitational pull of your life story and of this world is palpable to you. We're no different from these women. But the difference is that the angelic witness breaks through and reminds them of words of Jesus. And notice what Luke says about them as the story continues. Then they remembered his words. 
Then they remembered his words. Now, they, they've just quoted his words. They've just reminded them of his words. But when Luke sort of points this out, what is he doing? He's taking us from head to heart, I think. I think he's taking us sort of down the full being, motion of their being, that they're moving from sort of having heard something cognitively to actually embracing it inside of their own experience. They remembered the words that Jesus had spoken to them. And we see that this is not mere sort of dutiful memory. In other words, it's a recitation. Yes, of course, Jesus said this. Uh, John, you know, you know, Luke chapter 9, yes, I remember, he said this. No. Notice what they did. And returning from the tomb, they told all to the eleven and to all the rest. The idea, I think, is that these women have encountered something that has moved them to live and act differently. They're not simply acting inside of a world in which women and men had respective roles and, and they were, you know, this is just more of the confusion or perplexity, I don't think. I don't think they're saying, I don't get this, but I've got to go ask Peter and the rest of them to clarify this for me. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think rather they remembered the words of their Savior and they apply those words, they connect those words to what they're currently experiencing in the empty tomb. And immediately their feet are moving. I got to tell them. I've got to tell the despondent disciples what's going on. And that's exactly where they go. And it's intriguing to me that, you know, God sent the women angels, but he sends the men women. Go figure. And I think that actually gives hope to the rest of us. Because most of us aren't walking around experiencing an angelic witness. But most of us are walking around, and most of us, you, you think about your story of life with Jesus. You heard that from another human being. You heard that out of someone else's experience with Jesus. You heard it as part of a community of faith, the body of Christ, the church. And that's how the world hears the story. It's interesting in the context of Luke, Luke is writing this sort of massive story of Jesus. And he begins obviously in part one with the gospel story, the account of Jesus's life that moves up through all of his earthly life and high points in that, mo in that life up through death into resurrection and ascension. And then Acts, the story of the church, is how Luke chooses to continue telling not so much the story of Jesus, of the church rather, but of, the, of Jesus himself. Because we become recipients of the Holy Spirit of God and we're witnesses of God in our world. Jesus, in this encounter with the women and later this encounter with the men, is doing that which he's done throughout his earthly life. He's connecting with persons at the margin, the least powerful, and he's giving them an experience of him that they are to take into the world for the sake of other people. And the struggle that people like you and I have with Jesus is that we occupy mostly positions of power. Our relative power in the scale of the world is relatively high. We're educated, we're more among the elite, and maybe we feel comfortable among the elite. And the problem with that is just very simply 
that our taken-for-granted world very often feels like it's working for us. And we're less open to God because of that. We're less open to God because if God has to become the center of the world, if the story of Jesus has to become the center of my world, it means my world gets shaken up in ways that I don't necessarily want it shaken up. So what does it mean to begin to get Jesus? I think it requires an openness, a humility, and a willingness to relativize our taken-for-granted world, whatever it is, whether you're at a high point in your life and your world and things are going smoothly and your trajectory looks like a pretty good one, or whether you're at a relatively low point in your world and the sorrows and the burdens and the difficulties of life feel really palpable to you right now, that in either case, the resurrection of Jesus relativizes both ends and everything in between So that you and I would begin to recognize that our lives are not stuck in their own story. But our lives are caught up into the story of Christ. You see, if resurrection really happened, if resurrection really happened, um, we will need to change the way we relate to our stories. All right. Some of us read the news and we find a lot of sadness in the news. Uh, some of you read the political situation, the state of affairs. You know, you're reading that state of affairs and you feel a sense of despondency because it just feels like things never change and things get worse and they go from one bad story to one more bad story, right? It's really easy in that moment to sort of live in a space of despondency. But I want you to think about this for just a brief moment. If the story of Jesus is true, If it's true, what does that mean about the worst things you're currently experiencing? It means that it is relative to Jesus' story. What was his story? God in person in our world. God inhabiting a human body inside of our world. And what did we do to Jesus? Human beings, Jew and Gentile alike, moved against his body to take it out of existence. So in the story of Christ, the story of the world, that's got to be the worst possible thing that could ever happen. The created takes the life of the creator. I mean, just imagine for a moment just how awful that is. And if you sort of sit with that and you look at all of the hard things that are going on in our world now, it it relativizes their hardness to that. If you look at the story of your own life and all of the sad spaces in your life, it relativizes all of that to that because what is God saying to you except this, that I get the brokenness of the world and I will enter its weight. I will get beneath its weight fully, 100%. But here's the beautiful turn in the story. It's resurrection, because not only does the death of Jesus belong to you, his resurrection belongs to you, the empty tomb belongs to you. And it means that God has sort of instituted, he started something that is unfolding in the space of this world, that if it is true, it gives you hope. So wherever you find yourself in your own space this morning, if it's at a high point or if it's at a low point, what would it mean for you to recognize 
that the resurrection of Jesus has set in motion something that belongs to you, even at your height. And it's beyond your height. It's better than your height. It's well beyond it. And your future, if you're at a space that is low, it means that you're not stuck having to imagine the end of your story crashing beneath the weight of your own life. And all the sadness, whatever that is, it means you're a part of new creation. It was interesting as, as Suga was talking this morning, right, about gratitude. It's so easy to live inside of our world if the story of Jesus isn't true, we live with a sense of scarcity all the time. And that's why selfishness abounds in our world, by the way. It's why abuses of power abound inside of our world because we live in this world of scarcity. And so what are we doing? We're always grabbing. We're always protecting. We're always afraid that the little bit that we have is going to be taken from us. And we have such an inability to sort of open our hands and live generously because it's a world of scarcity. But if resurrection is true, if the gift, if Jesus' life is a gift, guess what? From the vantage point of heaven, it is not a gift. It is a given. It is a reality that will never stop. And the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And so all of life and all of history is moving steadily toward the great day when the first fruits becomes completely fruitful. That's the story that frames our lives as Christians. And the question for all of us is very much the question that was there for those women and for Peter and for Thomas, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It is just very simply this. What will you do with this story? Will you adapt your life to it or resist it? Peter was curious. He runs to the tomb, and after he sees its emptiness, he runs home amazed. At this point in the story, we're not told much beyond that, but I want you to remember Peter's story because Jesus had spoken a lot of words to Peter, and Peter had been the disciple who had confessed so very boldly, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, right? And, uh, and Jesus declares of that confession that I will build the church of Christ on that confession of faith that I am the Christ. I will build the church on that confession of faith. And then Jesus, as Peter struggles near the end of, of Jesus' life, Jesus says, you know, your faith will give way to doubt and you're going to deny me, actually, Peter. You're going to deny me before the cock crows three times this night. And Peter says, oh, no, never, not I. I am Peter, right? I, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Peter's in the moment. And all these persons are confronting him, asking him if he's not a follower of Jesus. He's like, no, I'm not. No, I don't know that guy. And then the cock crows. And in that moment, then Peter remembered what the Lord had said to him. How did he feel? How would you feel? You'd feel, my faith is so incredibly weak. You'd feel shame. You'd feel embarrassment. You'd feel a sense of despondency because you'd been so bold in front of everyone. But here you are turning away from Jesus. So it's interesting that in this moment of the women reporting this story to the disciples, it is Peter alone who runs to the tomb to find out what's going on because of his curiosity. 
Let me leave you with this quote from C.S. Lewis. It's from a collection of essays called God in the Dock, and it's from his chapter called The Grand Miracle. He writes this. He says, I believe God really has dived down into the bottom of creation and has come up bringing the whole redeemed nature on his shoulder, a first fruits of that cosmic summer which is presently coming on. Christ has risen and so we shall rise. And the day will come when there will be a remade universe. To be sure, it feels winter enough still, right? But often, in the very early moments of spring, it feels like that. 2,000 years are only a day or, t- a day or two on this scale. We ought really to say the resurrection happened 2,000 years ago in the same spirit in which he says, I saw a crocus yesterday. Because we know what is coming behind the crocus. The great thing is that the corner has turned. There is, however, this difference. The crocus cannot choose whether it will respond or not. We can. We have the power either to withstand the spring and shrink back into the cosmic winter or of going on into those high midsummer pomps in which our leader, the Son of Man, already dwells and to which he is calling us. It remains with us to follow or not, to die in this winter or go on into that spring and that summer. So there you are at the tomb, perplexed. And the invitation of Jesus is through the testimony of these women and the other disciples and really the testimony of Christians now for over 2,000 years is whether or not you will come to their witness and their words and adjust your belief, your feeling, your behavior to the testimony that their lives represent. To go into the spring and the summer or to retreat and hold on to your winter. The resurrection is the core of Christian belief. Everything we do and everything we talk about hinges upon it. If it is not true, we are silly and we are foolish. But he is risen, friends. He is risen indeed. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we continue in our time of worship, would you meet us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and would you help us to hear the witness of the church throughout the ages that has believed and embraced the story of Christ as true. They believe, they've embraced it intellectually, cognitively. They've embraced it emotionally and adjusted their lives to its truthfulness. They found great comfort in your love for them and the fact that you connect their story to yours. And they have lived accordingly. So we ask that as we go into this world that we likewise would believe, that we would feel deeply, and we would live as persons that are a part of your rich and generous world, a part of your new creation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.